Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week's podcast is a family affair. I have with me, and I'm very excited to have with me, two very distinguished writers of very different type, but they are mother and son. One is Judith Kerr, the children's author best known for Mog, the Mog series, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, and of course the autobiographical trilogy about her own experience as a refugee, which begins with When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit. Also with her is Matthew Neal, who writes, uh, is an author of literary novels and of history, whose book, The English, English Passengers, was shortlisted for Booker and won the Whitbread, or then Whitbread, now Costa, and whose latest book is A History of Rome in Seven Sackings, a non-fiction book. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Actually, since I'm in your house, I know it's appropriate. Thank you. Now, obviously, you are, as I say, you know, you write rather different books. Judith, you write children's books. Matthew, write sort of grown-up books. And so, we'll probably have to jump back and forth a little bit in some of the questions asked. But I want to ask you both, first of all, as if you like two generations of writers, do you have a relationship as writers as well as as members of the family? Well, we talk about it, but I'm, I'm, I never think of myself as a writer. I think of myself more as a drawer, um, which I think I know how to do, whereas writing, I struggle. And, uh, yes, Matthew is a great help sometimes. Yes. No, um, I think it's, uh, it's always been, my, this family has always been, it's a family of writers, my dad, of course was a screenwriter as well and yes and um so i think that's always been very part of very much part of our relationship all of us so my dad gave me advice when i was starting trying to trying to write fiction very good advice and we still talk every week we my mum and myself talk on the phone and we compare notes as to what's going right and what is going badly wrong and and give each other advice, and uh, my mum's very shrewd on these things. And... I didn't know that. Ah, oh, yes, you see. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, will com- you will read each other's drafts and suggest things? or Yes, and also it's, also you, it's often, when you've done this sort of thing for long enough, you know the questions to ask. So you say, have you thought about this? And have you done thought of what about this? And so you don't necessarily even need to have read it once you can, if you describe what the, the idea is, you can sort of guess where the, the problems may lie. Ask, I mean, it's really a question for you, probably, Matthew. When you get writers who are, if you like, you know, hereditary, hereditary writers, some of them, you know, very deliberately stake out their own territory. I know Nick Harkaway, who's a friend of mine, who's John le Carre's son. Right. You know, he doesn't go by Cornwell and his first novel. He said he very deliberately put ninjas in it because he knew that right. there you know, no chance of any ninjas appearing in the old man's work. Um, <laughs> but, Brilliant idea, yes. You know, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, for instance, you know, tills from much the same kind of field. Did you think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to write about cats or I'm not going to write about... Uh, I'm not going to write no, I, I definitely it. wasn't going to go into the cat business, no. Um, <laughs> well, I think I was more conscious of my dad because he was a screenwriter and I saw that uh, he was, it didn't seem to, I felt that it brought him all sorts of uh, unhappinesses sometimes because it's screenwriting is a, can be a fickle business and 
some of the works that he produced were the ones that were never made or were made badly. And uh, it can be quite heartbreaking sometimes. And I, I thought I'd tried initially, I thought I'll write a few novels and then if I can't make a penny out of it, I'll go into screenwriting. Uh, and somehow I never got round to the screenwriting. But I think I wanted to go in a different direction for that point of view. I can't draw, so uh, <laughs> my mum was... There was no real danger there of trying to compete with Mog. <laughs> you drew rather well as a Well, I never... But it never... It never it, you love drawing. Yes. It never, it never grabbed me in that way. And I think you're rather better at it. Well, I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, Judith, you say, I'm interested in you say that your first, you first think of yourself as a drawer, as an yes, artist, yes, and very sort of much second so. as a writer. Does that mean that when you're putting your stories together, you you think in terms of the sort of layout visually? I mean, do the, do the uh, pictures come first? Well, it's changed a bit, I think. Tom, my husband, had a great influence on me, and... I think if you live with a writer, you just pick up a certain amount. And so the first picture books I did, well, most of them really, the Mog series, were always plot-based. And mostly started by something that the cat did, some mad thing, because they're all mad. And I'd, I'd think, well, I, could, I can use that, I can make a story out of that. And... I think I learned an awful lot about construction from him. And certainly, when Hitler's Pink Rabbit, he helped me an awful lot with suggestions and ideas and how to do it. But then, after Tom died 12 years ago, I think I sort of... I didn't do anything for about a year. And then I got back into thinking in terms of pictures first, as I had done it long ago. And uh, so in that sense, I think the books have changed. And they... Tinker's Tale is, the, is your most recent book, isn't it? Yes. It's very visual. It is, little... yes. It, was, it, was, it started just with the idea of... Uh, cats being all sort of cosy during the day and then going wild at night. And, uh, yes, it was in terms of what would be fun to draw, you know, a whole, whole lot of animals flying. It's very much into flying, actually. The first book I did after Tom died, I started not with the idea of a plot, but with the idea... Uh, of Chagall, actually, who has creatures flying and doing wild things. And I I thought I want to do a book about animals doing mad things and flying. And it was only afterwards that I thought of, of, of a way to do it, to do it. In fact, I think it was my editor who said, why don't you make it a counting book and then you can do anything which worked, you know, one elephant flew, a crocodile and a kangaroo set off on a bicycle made for two. I was terribly pleased with that until I had to draw it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, the tension between the visual and the... Yes. <laughs> so it was... It, it's, it's different. And, and my father 
of course, was a writer also in Germany, and he was a drama critic, so that was another lot again. But it's all... It's that was all sort of the where same. the trouble started as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, which, of course, was, you know, something that had all biographical strands, but, as you said, your husband, you know, oh. gave suggestions how you shaped it to make it into fiction. Well, he he, uh, he he had a much more basic view, actually, because I was telling him about this book I thought I would write about my childhood uh, living in these different countries, and which I, my brother and I both enjoyed very much. And he said, yes, it's all very well, but you can't just write about how you lived in Switzerland and Paris. Hitler has to be on the first page, (laughs) (laughs) which I hadn't thought of. I got him on the second page. (laughs) (laughs) He's used to selling screenplays. (laughs) Matthew, you two have kind of been a writer who's been very interested, even as a novelist, in history. And I'm interested Mm -hmm. you've jumped the tracks. You haven't written a novel straight for a decade or so have you no no I tried it's um yes no I became interested in history I suppose living in Rome is always a bit dangerous and uh, I think I wanted to write something about Rome Rome is a hard place to write about in a way it can feel like it's a place where nothing happens it's it's uh things do happen but it's uh it doesn't have a dynamism and um, and I quite like a story that has some kind of sense of dynamism there somewhere. Um, Is that why you focused on the sackings? Well, I thought it was the only way I could... I really wanted to produce something that told, gave an overview of the whole of Rome's history. And it's, uh, I couldn't find anything that did it in a way that I felt was clear as to how it had developed. And the the only way I could think of doing it was in that way, which was to concentrate on a handful of moments and sacking seem the obvious ones because they're exciting and they're dramatic but also they're quite important because they often would change the direction of the city i have a sort of feeling that people will continue doing exactly the same thing until something happens that's so so terrible and discouraging that they will change their ways and sackings were definitely terrible and discouraging. So, no, so sacking seemed the obvious way, way to go. And I wanted to create... Uh, I mean, also sackings, to be honest, were the, it, was, uh, it gave a dramatic structure to what I really was interested in, which was producing seven portraits of the city before it sacked, so that you could see how it changes. So I wanted to produce, if you like, seven enormous postcards of the city and how people lived and what it looked like and it felt like and it smelt like and so you could it would be like a kind of join the dots puzzle <laughs> so uh and in that way you'd see how it changed how it developed from this small i mean large it was initially the largest city in the western mediterranean in western in central italy but it was still a by our standards it would seem a small very decrepit little place into this vast metropolis and then shrinking away almost to nothing again and going through its many changes. So uh, I thought it'd be fun to do that. And I certainly was also selfish. I mean, I like to walk around the city every day and I feel I understand it now, which I never did before. Get to do your research. Is there a sort of fictional itch that 
you feel the need to scratch, or do you? Did you think this is this is a non-fiction book? It, you know, because you, you could see how you know there would be a way of writing it. I don't know Robert Harris style as as fiction or doing. I did. I did actually try and write write something similar as fiction briefly, but uh, it just didn't work. It was just too too complicated. At a certain point, I thought, oh, wait a minute, this would this is only doable as non-fiction, and I think it definitely works better. But no, I like writing fiction. I'm writing fiction again now. So I, I see the appeal of non-fiction. You, for a start, you know how, it, how the ending will be. Um, but fiction is... Non-fiction has its own stresses. There's definitely a sense... I worry that I've got to get absolutely everything right. I check and recheck. And fiction, you've got a bit of slack. You can, you can just leave things out. And then you don't have to have got it got it right in non-fiction you really have to cover all the all the areas that you are important so it's i've and i like telling stories so that's i mean but the, you know history's entered into i mean i think your book sweet thames is just being reissued and that's sort of 19th century cholera epidemic yes. do you feel when you're researching history even for fiction that you need you need it to be true yes yeah. absolutely no because uh I studied history at university. I'm I'm a great respecter of getting things correct, and I don't even in fiction. I don't think one should mislead. Uh, so I like to try and get it as, as accurately as I can. Of course, the the real difficulty or the real challenge, as people would say today, is, is the is getting the feeling accurate. And of course, you'd never really know. Speaking of feeling, Judith is certainly as a someone who both grew up with your books and now reads them to my own children. And there's, the things often kind of strike me going through and through your books is that these funny sort of little interruptions of surreality in them. So it, you know, in the time came, that came to tea, when I was very young... The two things that absolutely struck in my head was the idea that the tiger could drink all the water in the tap. Yes. bothered me kind of deeply. <laughs> um, the, this, the, that was the one bit that the publishers thought perhaps should come out because they said it's not very realistic is it <laughs> <laughs> but then they, they, well the people then they were a bit set in their ways uh, no that the tiger who came to tea was purely a story i made up for my daughter who was then two going on three and it was purely to please her. I put in everything she liked. I mean, tigers, because we'd seen them in the zoo and both thought they were wonderful. And uh, she had this passion for going out in the dark. So, you know, they all went out in the dark and something about the lamp, street lamps being lit. I'd never have put that in, except I knew this was what... But there's a kind of free sign that... that panel where they've all gone out in the dark because there's this one figure on the street who's sort of hunched over going <laughs> out I mean I'm sure I'm not the first person to have asked you about this figure but I always want to write the whole he filled a space he just <laughs> filled a space yes. I thought it was a sort of sinister creature <laughs> I, Actually, I think it's the sort of book that generates theories I remember talking to the Newsnight presenter Emily Maitless at a party years ago and she said we fell to talk as we had young children about the tiger came to tea, as everyone does. And she said, well, it's obviously a, an allegory about, you know, sexual frustration. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Rosen said it was the Gestapo. Uh, <laughs> the tiger was the Gestapo. And uh, um, I, I, I mean, he's terribly nice. I, I don't mind him saying that. 
but I, I never saw the Gestapo, so I, I, I'm not hung over in that way. No, it is. Um, it, it was just a tiger, that's, that's all. And uh, <laughs> I think Tom was out a lot at that time. I think he was doing a film. Uh, and you weren't born yet. And uh, so Tacey and I got very bored, I think, and we wished somebody would come. And <laughs> just the tiger seemed as good as anything. I'm actually with the, the Gestapo and the, you know, you're both of you are writers who've got a sort of very international you know, history and interest. And we're looking, you know, we're in times of quite considerable turmoil. I mean, mm. Matthew, you're very polylingual, you live in Rome, and your, your refugee story, of course, is well known. Can I ask a bit, you know, how you both separately survey the international scene? I mean, I mean, the first place I suppose we could say, you. We hear a lot of talk now about fascism. Yes. And now you've seen the real thing in your lifetime. Do you think that's idle talk? I've I've never actually seen it. I mean, I've heard about it and read about it, but I've uh, we we left Germany before anything could touch, well, me anyway, at the age of nine, and I was. My brother may have been more aware of it, but I, I wasn't, and. Yeah, I hear about it now, and uh, it does seem rather sinister and rather boring, having had all this <laughs> once. You know, surely they could have thought of something better. <laughs> but, um, I suppose the one advantage of, of being 95 years old is that you don't have to worry too much about the future, not for yourself anyway, though for your grandchildren, obviously. I was talking to you about that, actually. I thought, you know, everything's been going on so nicely. Why is it suddenly <laughs> changing? And you pointed out that this was history, and it's mm. always like that. Yes. But I hadn't thought of that. Yes, no, history doesn't go in for happy endings. It just keeps on coming. <laughs> yes, uh, it seems totally unnecessary. <laughs> Do you think we're on the verge of another sacking? I hope not. I really hope not. I hope things will calm down, but you just don't know. I mean, uh, history is the law of unintended consequences, and if I learnt anything from all these sackings, it's it's really is that huge things can stem from quite minor things. So I really don't know where we are. I find it extremely disturbing, and I don't know where... uh, I'm in Italy, and I'm not quite sure where things are going there. Italy, I, I, the Italians are a people who I have a lot of confidence in in many ways, but I'm, I don't know where anywhere's going at the moment. So it's just definitely disturbing. Is there, is there something encouraging in, you know, looking at your, your latest book that Rome is a place that's been sacked seven times yes. over very dramatically and now it's a place that, as you say, you know, nothing really happens? Yes. Well, yes, definitely. There's, there is that. If you look at Rome, I mean, look just looking at all the things that have happened in Rome, we seem in paradise by comparison. I mean, things were really bad many times in the past, and life was very, very uncertain and unstable. So, you know, it's just that we, suddenly there is this feeling of where are we going, what is happening, and it makes one realise that actually a few years ago things were... We were better off than we realised, probably. Did you see the sort of whole Brexit vote as a as a bad thing or a good thing? Well, yes. Living in Rome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I live in Rome, so I'm. I always had a very sort of strong sense of being European, and I was 
very I thought that Europe uh, Europe all the Europe was it was a good thing for, not only for Europe but for the world I thought a sort of a, a Europe that would be heard would be a good influence in the world and uh, so I find it all rather discouraging and also it put us personally in a, a tricky situation because everything we had was in Italy and my children have a very Italian side to them and suddenly we didn't really know where we were going to be and uh, thanks to my mother's history we were able to become German citizens as well which we did oh, so, so I'm now uh, Anglo-German and uh, and actually that's the one thing that's cheered me up is that it's opened up a side to our lives which I hadn't really wouldn't have bothered with otherwise so older son has learnt German for the last year and a half and he's going to an internship in Berlin this summer so it's it's added things which wouldn't have been added otherwise otherwise I just find it all rather discouraging <laughs> that's a sort of restitution in the long <laughs> run isn't it yes yeah. do you go back to Germany I do yes because my, my books are published there and my father's books which were burned by the Nazis have all been republished and he is very much remembered and somebody's just written a huge biography of him in, in Germany which has done very well so I, I, I've been going back well for sad reasons in the past because my father's death and my mother's but uh, then when uh, they published when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit and took it very seriously because it came out at a time in the 70s when the Germans hadn't really worked out how to talk about the past to their children and because nothing awful happened to me this book was a sort of way through and I think they still have to read it at school and write essays about it, which is horrible. I always hated writing essays about books. So I, I've been back for that. And uh, recently, my father was uh, much older than my mother. He was born in 1867. And so last year, he had his 150th birthday. <laughs> in Germany, which was celebrated in quite a big way because uh, he's sort of come back now. And uh, he, 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 he wasn't just a drama critic. He wrote some, also some very good lyrical verse and he wrote about everything, including Hitler before he came to power, which is how we got out. We were so lucky uh, before because he knew they'd get him if, uh, if we didn't. Am I right? And you mentioned when it's still a big rabbit. There, so I saw someone online claim that the reason you wrote it originally was because Matthew <laughs> saw the sound of music and said, <laughs> "Was that what Mummy's childhood was like?" <laughs> you didn't right. ask. You just stated. You no. said, "Now we know exactly <laughs> what it was like when Mummy was a little girl." But the you were always into history. <laughs> well, no, but you were always interested in history, yeah, and this the, was the, the only details, information you, you had. <laughs> I was younger then. I mean, you my, research was more, my research was more basic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you ever think of doing a straight memoir? No, I, I, I've, I've done a lot, really, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not that comfortable writing. I, 
I do prefer to draw. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a writer in that sense. Uh, after I'd written the, uh, the last, the, the th- third volume of, of, you know, When Hitler Still Pink Rabbit, which is almost a, more or less a grown-up book, I thought, um, okay, now I'm a novelist. I'm going to write another novel, and and, and I thought of something, which was perfectly good, sort of idea, I think. And so I wrote it, and, well, I wrote some of it, and then I, I think I wrote it in the third person, so then I rewrote it in the first person, and then I wrote an introduction, I think, and uh, I never got more than halfway, and this went on for about 18 months, and then I realised that... uh, you know, this just—it didn't wish me to write it, and uh, so I think I did six mock books in a row. <laughs> and I think that was me. <laughs> I'd say very exciting to see that the original for Katinka yes. is drowsing in the sunshine outside. Yes. Was, there, was there an original mock? This is probably. Oh yes, very much so. I'd always wanted a cat. Because we had dogs when I was little, but cats always seemed so interesting. And of course, we could never have one when I was a child. And uh, Tom loved animals, and uh, he'd always had cats. So when we got Tom was the the husband. husband, Yes, yes, uh, yes, he was Nigel Neal, but everybody he was really Tom. And uh, so when we got this house, we got a cat because you need a garden for a cat. And uh, we got Mog, actually, who was... Uh, and and I, I was so so surprised by, by, by the things she did that the first Mog book was really just about what Mog did. But uh, again, you see, Tom said... I, I said, but... I knew by then. I, I said, but something's got to happen. And uh, he said, oh, let her catch, catch a burglar and went back to work. <laughs> 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 so that was, that was it. So she caught a burglar. Well, I've had a lot of well. help from the family, actually. And so, Matthew, you're, you said you mentioned that you were returning to fiction. Can you say... Is it a historical novel? Yes, Is anything yes. Like it? it's a historical novel. It's, uh, it's, it's roughly it's about a group of uh, pilgrims in the late uh, 13th century going from England to Rome. And I'm not very religious, so uh, but I I just thought it would be interesting. And I'm always trying to write something vaguely about Rome. And uh, I it drew me into the medieval period, which I never really studied. But I began to learn a bit about from this last book, and uh, it's a fascinating, amazing period. So it's been a great thing for me to to read a lot about medieval England and read Chaucer. And, I was going to uh, say, stories about groups of pilgrims yes. do come a little over Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, Chaucer's a, a bit later, but I'm hoping that things were pretty similar. And just that I love the language. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And Judith, I guess, you know, having just celebrated your 95th birthday, that hasn't slowed you up. You're working on a new book as well. Well, yes. I understand that you've completed one. Can uh, you say well, what Well, I've got about? one coming out, I think, in the autumn. 
and uh, it's just about well you know I, I walk about in barns and I go to the duck pond and then uh, there are young mums with their small children and mums solidly on the phone and uh, so uh, this is about uh, a mum and uh, what the child gets up to well she's on the telephone (laughs) (laughs) one of the best ideas you've ever had I think it's great (laughs) well you were very encouraging about it yes it was quite fun because you can sort of slightly relate what what mum is saying on the phone to the sort of wild things that the child <laughs> is doing that she's unaware of. <laughs> yeah. Modern cautionary tale. Well, uh, Judith Carr and Matthew Neal, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank, thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>